Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Goober P Podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm Kate. So today, on episode two of the Goober P Podcast, what we're going to be doing is looking at a couple more chapters in the iconic Battle Cry of Freedom by James McPherson. Um, we'll be working through a couple more chapters, and of course, the underlying premise of this whole podcast is to look at books on the Civil War era, so before the war, during, and then after, and kind of dive into these topics and take a look at how they're impacting us today, why we should care about it, from the perspective of two folks out west. A uh, quick question for you. Um, since we're having fun so far, <laughs> a- according to you before we started recording, uh, what's what's an idea for like the next book? Do you have an idea for that, for the next book? I feel like I have too many ideas for the next book. It might depend on, like, you know, things that pop up during our reading about the Civil War. I you was, know, what, what, what interests us? I was just going to say that. I think, I think it's too early to determine the next book. And I think as we work through, we'll find topics or, I don't know, areas where we want to explore more. Uh, we also have a military atlas now. Yeah. Which is going to guide us, help you know, be a big guide. Yeah. Thanks to my dad for getting that ridiculously huge book for our tiny house. You know, it seems like we're a long ways away from battles yet. You know, we're still mid 1850s and just feels like we're these two chapters we're going to talk about today are deeply trenched in politics Mm. and a lot of different politics we're going to try to wade through in a short summary but my goodness it's a lot of politics and i think that the fact that like mcpherson takes a bit of time like a chunk of time before he even gets to the presidential election of 1860 or the first shots of the civil war any of those battles is because to understand the importance of what went on during those four years you gotta set the stage and like get a grasp on what's going on before what's feeding into this fundamental you know chasm that splits the country open and I think he does a good job of getting that across because I think sometimes we just jump right into the war and the battles and you know um we kind of skip over the most important part yeah we lose the why (laughs) um we lose that and then we lose the lesson that comes with that um the battles are fun to talk about um, but, but they're not, well, not <laughs> fun is probably the wrong word, but they're, it's interesting, especially if you like this time period, but it's not the, the inter- the, the most impactful hu- humanity and human part of it is happening right now. Um, mm-hmm. well, the, the era we are reading about. Yeah. Um, uh, once again, McPherson knocks it out of the park. I will say we don't have as many nicknames to talk about these on these chapters more I, more political party nicknames yeah i did notice that i was i was looking for nicknames as i was reading through these chapters and i think we see some nicknames that we already knew that mm-hmm. are kind of coming circling back into the story here but not a lot of new nicknames so that's going to be a a slim part of the pod today a lot of interesting candidates for the Republican Party before it was known as the Republican yeah, Party. Absolutely. But uh, we'll get more but, into that. You want to start with chapter three? Yeah, so let's um, dive in. So chapter three of, again, this is Battle Cry of Freedom by James McPherson, the first book that we're kind of working through. And then after we finish working through this one, we'll pick a new one. Um, chapter three is titled An Empire, An Empire for Slavery. So there's a pretty big and obvious theme going on in chapter three. (laughs) Um, McPherson spends a lot of time writing about slavery, um, you know, and especially in the South. So this idea of how slavery, how this institution, you know, is shaping a whole region of the country, both how they live, how they want to live, their motivations, their actions. So... It's kind of the big overarching theme for the chapter. Do you want to continue with our spilling over of Manifest Destiny now or save that? Because there is a a fair amount of that in this chapter. I think we should. I think that should come a little later. Okay. Um, You want to start by talking about the Fugitive Slave Law? 
I think that's a good idea. I think that's a good idea. I think one of the things that struck me, and McPherson writes about it, and I just thought it was really interesting. I'd never thought of it. I'd never had it framed in this way. But it's that um, historically the South, the Southern states was really, they were really pro states rights on issues, topics, politics, and really anti-federal, like um, big federal government's rights and controls, with one big (laughs) exception, and that is... Their opinion on slavery. Not just their opinion on slavery, Jesse, but the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. At this time, Southerners weren't very interested in the federal government telling them what to do or how to do it or anything like that. But they were super, super pro-federal government power when it came to this example of the Fugitive Slave Law. And using a lot of government resources to track down one person. Yeah. I mean, like, tons and tons of manpower went into that. For sure. Which is fascinating. For sure. It's also, this was really hard to read about. Um, Yeah. McPherson shares several personal, not personal stories, but individual stories people who escaped enslavement in the South mm-hmm. and were uh, were treated horribly, you know, being brought back to that enslaved status in the South mm-hmm. with those, you know, federal government resources. Mm-hmm. So the Fugitive Slave Law comes before Kansas, Nebraska. Yes. Um, the f- what is the Fugitive Slave Law for those who haven't yeah. heard of it or read about it? Good question. The Fugitive Slave Law was passed in 1850, so it was part of that... um, Compromise. mm -hmm, Part of that compromise. Basically, what it did is it created a stronger federal-level law to enforce um, any slaves who escaped slavery and got to northern states, um, and it was to have a stricter and more harsh or rigorous way to for Southern slave owners to go and get those escaped slaves back. Um, the interest, there's a few interesting things about the fugitive slave law. And I do appreciate McPherson sharing those individual stories. I think those are super powerful and meaningful and like people should know people should read about that just to have it be the experience be humanized a little bit. But I want to talk a little bit about, kind of the other side of of that, which is some of the logistics of this. So for the Fugitive Slave Law, the burden of proof was actually put on the quote-unquote fugitives themselves, right? And if you know or remember in the U.S. Constitution at that time, those African Americans, those, you know, fugitive slaves did not have any legal rights or legal power. And so by placing the burden of proof on the escaping African American mm-hmm. who had no legal power at the time, the the way the law was set up from the get-go was Oh, absolute sham. Yeah. And it was like rigged towards those southern slave and slave the, owners. There were several examples of um uh Black free people mm-hmm. who had never, who had either been born free or had um, earned their freedom long before mm-hmm. being brought to the South mm-hmm. um, in inaccurately reported as enslaved people. Yep. And uh, just horrible, horrible stuff. <clears throat> the one other thing I want to just mention in terms of like the law itself that I think is really interesting and I think for like an average listener might just add a cool layer to how you're thinking about this topic and this law is that um, if the commissioner decided against the Southern slave owner, then that commissioner, you know, in, in a case with a fugitive slave law is in question. So the commissioner is deciding it, are they going to side with the Southern slave owner? Or are they going to side with this, uh, you know, quote unquote fugitive, right? And if the commissioner, the decider, decided against the southern slave owner, they would receive $5 at the time. So $5 of that of 1850s era money. If they decided in favor of the southerner, right, they would receive $10. 
And so again, this is written into the law itself. And many times this was thought of as like essentially a bribe um, because it was a financial incentive because you got double the amount of money if you sided with the slave owner than if you sided with the fugitive or the escaped African-American person. So again, like not these laws, we talk about them. But there's interesting little nuggets that can reveal, like, what were some of the issues with this law? Or what were the motivations? Who are the people pulling the strings behind the scenes of these types of things? It, it seems like to me on, on its surface, the, the part of the fugitive slave law is the North, factions of the North attempting to do a little bit of hand-holding for the South or trying to keep the Union together. Um, and unfortunately, black people at the time pay the highest price for that yeah. uh, political <clears throat> game. And yeah. is that is that accurate? I mean, it just seems like it's another attempt to Com- hold the union together. Yeah, I mean, it's um, part of that compromise of 1850, right? So, yeah. but it's so yeah short is, term. It's not. A, it's uh, not. Well, it's, like uh, of course we know that now. Right? Hindsight's twenty twenty. It only so, lasts like, 11 more years. Right. Or it lasted 11 years. But, like, in the moment, they I didn't have that perspective of, right. like, it's That's only going to, this will only get us through X number more years. The other the other quick thing the Fugitive Slave Law did that I want to just touch on is it, it gave the government the ability to deputize citizens. Any citizen could be deputized in the search for one of these fugitive slaves. So if you're in the North and you're an abolitionist or you're really opposed to slavery, you, in some cases, if you were deputized in the, in like the search for one of these folks, you didn't have a choice, right? You were being told that you had to then go kind of betray your own ethics or morality for this law that was inherently pretty pro-Southern. And there's, there's, I think it's important to also mention that there's plenty of racism going on in the North as well. Definitely. States like Indiana and Illinois mm-hmm. are making it, are banning black immigration flee, free or slave, mm-hmm. which is really, it's really interesting, but it's also just pretty gnarly. It's, it's hard, again, it's hard to read this and not feel a huge sense of injustice. Yeah, agreed. But again, we are, we do have the advantage of being we have modern and having the yeah. perspective of the history. Yeah. But it is still, when you read about these stories, it's just, it's it's impactful and it is emotional. It is, yeah. Um, but anyway, well, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you're, you're fine. I guess we are on a podcast talking back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> the, um... So, right, the Fugitive Slave Law is made up of these various things. It's deputizing. It has the ability to deputize Northerners. There's kind of that, I'm calling it the bribery element to it. They did not call it the bribery element in the law. And then the burden of proof. And because of all of these different factors, because of these, you know, really awful personal stories that happened across Northern states, um... The Fugitive Slave Law was very galvanizing. This law, it really kind of fed Northern resistance to this law. And it, again, just heightened and highlighted the differences, those sectional differences between, you know, the slave-owning states and the Union and the non-slave-owning states. Um, So actually, McPherson talks about how Northern resistance to the Fugitive Slave Law fed the resentment of fire eaters still seething over the admission of California. So it was like this Northerners resisting the fugitive slave law up in the North. And then the Southerners, these quote unquote fire eaters, which is what they called the like really extreme pro South folks. Um, The Northern resistance to this law was then feeding that resentment that the fire eaters had. So it was this like kind of vicious cycle happening The one other thing I want to touch on before we move away from the Fugitive Slave Law is this idea of Southern honor. Okay, so I noticed this coming up in the first two chapters, and I've noticed it a lot in Chapter 3, especially Chapter 3, which is all about an empire for slavery. So it's about the South and slavery. 
And this idea of Southern honor is just something I want to track as we talk through this whole book. Because it seems like very rarely do we hear about Northern honor. I was just going to ask you, is there an equivalent right. in the North? And I, I, you know, there, there might be, and there might be kind of more localized or more like small scale equivalents in the North, but not on such a broad span as like Southern honors, like a whole region of the country. And I think what's interesting about that is that it lends itself to this idea that by this time, by the 1850s, there was starting this distinctly different kind of like um, almost Southern culture and then a nationalism that came up around that culture and then so closely tied to nationalism in whatever context you want to talk about it is the idea of honor and pride, right? It's interwoven. And so there's this great quote. Um, oh, are you talking about Debeau? No, oh. but we can talk about okay. him in a minute. There's this great quote at the start of this chapter where Senator James Mason, he's from Virginia, is saying he's talking about fugitive slaves. And he says, quote, Although the loss of property is felt, the loss of honor is felt still more. Why is this idea of honor such an intangible thing such a galvanizing force for an entire region of of people for an entire culture i think it's just really interesting um how widespread do you think that was do you think that's coming out of the aristocracy of the south or do you think that that is spread across the population in the south that idea of southern honor that you're talking about um, what are some other aspects of it like could you Tell me more about... Well, I think we'll get a couple other examples as we go through. Yeah. Um, but I do think it was more widespread than just kind of that wealthy elite, what we might call the planter class of the South at the time. I think that that was the group of people who were really super like monetarily invested in the idea of Southern honor. But one of the really interesting things is with this idea of like a uniquely different Southern culture and Southern nationalism around that culture is that it permeates all levels of white society in the South at the time. Um, you know, being able to stand up and behind this culture of, you know, some of the classic things you hear about with the South, like... Um, um, civility or charming or um, very like oh, hospitable like, almost or hero heroism yeah and having this like leisurely um, way of life and that type of thing mm -hmm. I think even if folks in the south were not a part of that wealthy elite top class there was still the aspirational part of it. And so mm -hmm. they wanted to protect that idea of identity, nationalism, culture, because of that aspirational, right? Maybe, you know, someday it's a combination of this like Southern culture, but paired with the, you know, quote unquote American dream that's broadly across the United States mm -hmm. at the time of like, you can get pulled up from your bootstraps. Yeah. If you put your mind to it and work hard, you can do anything. And I think when you combine that kind of American dream language with the, you know, Southern culture pre-Civil War, you get, you know, a widespread across all economic ranges of, of the South at the time. And you see, um, you know, a group of people who are aspirational to become that planter class. It seems like when abolitionists start speaking out against slavery... And you have arguments that are pretty compelling for um, for freeing people in the South, freeing black people in the South. The Southern population almost doubles down on this, uh, this like mm -hmm. Southern nationalism, as you put it, or Southern mm -hmm. um, identity. Yeah, and one of the other interesting things and in kind of like segueing, you know, from the Fugitive Slave Law to like the rest of this chapter is... Um, I jotted down just like shorthand, you know, the boy who cried wolf, right? That like classic mm. story of the boy who cried wolf, boy who cried wolf. And then when there actually was a wolf, um, no one believed him, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea 
I was like, wow, this is kind of like the southern states in the 1850s with this idea of secession. Because they keep talking about, like, if you don't do this, we're going to leave. If you don't do this, we're going to leave. We're only going to stay if you do X, Y, Z, right? And then, you know, the northern states, the rest of the union is like, oh, shoot, (laughs) we don't want... We don't want disunion. Yeah. And so, um, you know, just because the South is like kind of having this secession, 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 it almost dulls it. And then so when you get to, um, you know, when they're actually starting to secede, I think people were genuinely like a little bit surprised. Like, oh, shoot, they're actually going to do it now. Um, Of course, that's skipping ahead. But the idea that... The South staying in the Union was contingent on the behaviors and choices of the Northern states is really um, kind of a key thing as we move through the 1850s. I think that with publications like Uncle Tom's Cabin, it starts to become obvious to more people in the North. Um, And then we'll talk about it more with the... um, the beginning of the Republican Party, mm-hmm. it starts to become obvious. Look, we're the we're gonna have to deal with slavery. We've right. been kicking it down. We've been kicking this ball down the road. Yeah, and this has to happen. I think Uncle Tom's Cabin is one of those moments that mm-hmm. Northerners, even people in America, not just the Northerners, probably people in the South as well, mm-hmm. realize something's gonna come to a head. Yeah, <laughs> and one of the things that Uncle Tom's Cabin did, I mean, it was hugely popular. But it um, kind of forced the North to look at their role in, you know, their conscience yeah. in this in this issue of slavery as well. Like when Lincoln was running for the Senate, and you and he's saying, "What should we do with the enslaved population?" And he's like, "My instincts tell me to free them." But mm-hmm. then what? And then he like mentions he's almost like thinking out loud, and he's saying, "Send them to Liberia or." Or let them live as a right. l- lesser class in the in America. You can almost hear him like his his feelings on the on the subject are are still evolving at that time. Yeah, and they would continue to evolve over the course of his like political life. And that is probably a really important thing to mention mm-hmm. for listeners is yes. like because you'll you'll hear Lincoln's name today. And some people will point out all kinds of negative things that he did or some, even racist ideas he had. And, of course, he was a person from uh, earlier era. But the one thing that I like about him that Kate has kind of taught me is that he did. He was able to change his mind and mm-hmm. evolve his opinions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really good characteristic of yeah. a leader. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Lincoln is an interesting fellow. Obviously, we're going to talk a lot more about old Abe. Um, But speaking of Uncle Tom's Cabin and kind of this, the power that that book, that that publication had, Lincoln actually, you know, later on, he, he actually gets to meet Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. I think it was... Um, so when he met her late in 1862, so this is kind of skipping ahead a little, but I think it shows the power of this book. Apparently, reportedly, Lincoln greeted her by saying, quote, so you're the little woman who wrote the book that made this great war, right? (laughs) So even folks at the time were able to see like, wow, this book, this literature and the ideas that are embedded within it, um, is so powerful. Yeah. To the point where what I was surprised by is Uncle Tom's Cabin was selling out in southern states as well. It's like in places like Charleston and in um, Savannah, some of these big southern cities, Uncle Tom's Cabin was not staying on the bookshelves. People, there was such a demand and there was this like interest and kind of fervor and like, you know how sometimes when you... Yeah, it's like that thing when people watch really bad reality TV shows and they're like, it's just so bad, I can't look away. Right. I feel like that was the South. They were like so outraged that they had to see it for themselves. They like hate read it. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what? I think I'm going to try to land this analogy. The The question of slavery is like a pad thai dish. <laughs> okay. Uncle Tom's Cabin <laughs> was the... <laughs> no, check it okay, out. Okay, check okay, it keep out. Keep going. The question of slavery was the was a pad thai dish, right? 
and you're when you're making pad thai i'm just trying to yeah yeah and like uncle it. tom's cabin comes along and it becomes a squeeze of lime juice right at the end that you mm. need to kind of finish off the dish and right. i just feel like all of this this question of slavery was boiling it was just ready to boil Mm-hmm. And uh, Uncle Tom's cabin came along. You yeah. just get that little hint, hint yeah. of lime juice to finish off just the dish, and it's a kiss that's of it. lime. Do you want to talk about economics too? Yeah, I do think that's an important factor, <clears throat> both when talking about slavery, but also when talking about the South in this kind of lead up. And McPherson spends a good amount of time talking about the economics. Mm-hmm. Um, a big mistake the South made their their economy is not adapting or evolving at this time. They continue to put their money into what, Kate? Cotton. Oh, well, well people land. and land. Yeah. People and land. So, yeah. the Which doesn't do a lot for railroads and things like that. Right. Well, and a lot of that is because historically, like up to this point, the South was doing great. They were able to export a boatload of raw materials and then import the finished products, no problem. Right. But once you start talking about secession or Southern independence or, you know, whatever that might be, Southerners start looking around and saying, hang on a sec. Everything we buy comes from the North. Or from, from abroad. From England. So the South is looking around and saying, we have almost half of the population of this country, 42%, but we only have 18% of the nation's manufacturing capabilities, right? They're looking around saying, maybe we're not that independent or maybe we really are dependent on, you know, the economic manufacturing and industrialization of the North. And so this idea of the South as kind of economically subordinate to the whims of the North you know. But it doesn't, it's so confusing because at the same time, they're also doubling down and saying, but this is what makes us from the South. Yeah. They're saying, we like the, there's True. a quote that I read in this chapter of this guy. I think, I think it was, was it DeBoe or one of those, art, those mm-hmm. pro-Southern articles Yeah, that was saying like, we like old books and old this and mm. old that. And basically saying we like old ways, hinting yeah. at we like slavery. Right. So it's really interesting. It's like, they're realizing their weakness is part of their identity without saying that directly. Well, and it goes to that idea of like this kind of subculture within the southern states, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's exactly what what you're saying is fits exactly with that. Um, one of the biggest things that the South did have going for it economically was cotton. Cotton was a huge major export from the southern states. And a large reason why the South was able to profit so much on cotton was because of slave labor. Um, But they were exporting a ton of cotton. I mean, to the point where it was, it's commonly known that it was referred to as King Cotton in the Southern states. Like this crop was at the top of the food chain. The problem, they they were buying it back from Northern manufacturers, but not just cotton. I mean, Anything. pencils, Shoes. all that stuff. Guns. Many yeah. things. Guns. I mean, the southern states were only keeping 5% of the cotton they produced, right? 5%. So that means all the rest of it was being exported either to Europe or to the northern industries. And then if you need to buy cloth or clothes or blankets or sheets, right? Any of that then you're essentially paying for something you just exported. Right. The North, meanwhile, is investing in innovation, roads, canals, education, Mm -hmm. things that are making, yeah, things that are making their economy and the population just more dynamic in general, Mm -hmm. um, able to maybe be more adaptive. Yeah. Um, And there's this interesting idea that comes up in this chapter, right, because this chapter is kind of about how Southerners perceive slavery and rely on it and, you know, the pitfalls of that to some extent. And so um, there's a quote in here from a Southerner, and he's saying financially, you know, in his eyes, he says, quote, financially, we are more enslaved than, um, you know, the people that they enslave. And so this is in a letter he sent to John Calhoun. And so there's this recognition among leaders and politicians in the South at the time 
of this issue. And then this recognition of like, hey, wait a sec, maybe we should do some industrializing here really comes and like comes to bloom with Debao or Debeau. Yeah, I'm not sure De- how to say it. I believe it's Debeau. Okay. Um, you know, one thing that I thought was it, when you read arguments against slavery, uh-huh. people in the North, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, but uh-huh. people like Horace Greeley are arguing for not the humanity side of abolition, but just saying people are more productive when they're not enslaved. And so yeah. he's appealing to that industry mind or that like industrious. Yeah. Those who might be industrious minded, I guess. There's a quote, if I could read it, if you don't mind. Don't mind at all. Horace Greeley, um, enslave a man, d- declared Horace Greeley, and you destroy his ambition, his enterprise, his capacity. Mm-hmm. In the constitution of human nature, the desire of bettering one's condition is the mainspring of effort. Yeah. And so you've, you find the, these arguments against slavery trying to appeal to people's, um, I don't know, ambition, I guess, of saying people are yeah. more productive mm-hmm. instead of saying, you know, slavery is just wrong and messed up. Right. It's really interesting. I thought that was really interesting. It is interesting. And I think it sheds a lot of light on the northern views of slavery at the time. I think, like, broadly, people who were abolitionists or who were anti-slavery weren't necessarily anti-slavery in the way that we would assume people... Like, we, from 2024... Right. Like, with our morals and our, like you know, background of what we know today, um, we would assume people were morally opposed to slavery. But I think there a are, lot There of, were examples of that. 100%. But especially in the 1850s, those were not as common as people who were just opposed to, we want to weaken the slave power in the southern states, exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. They're going to overpower the north, right? That idea was really common. And I think that's one of the pitfalls we can fall into today is because like, you know, us modern humans in 2024, we look at it and we say, Oh my gosh, of course they were morally opposed, but that's not necessarily true in every case in the North before the war begins. And even during the war itself, you know who I thought about with that Horace Greeley quote was James Longstreet. I think that's something that he comes to realize at the end of the war. And I don't want to spoil it, but Um, you Bringing have a up southern a controversial figure. Well, well, <laughs> no, it's not bad. I'm just saying, Long like, Street is fascinating. By the end of the Civil War, Longstreet's looking around like, I pick, I pick the losing side here. This is mm-hmm. maybe not the best model, um, yeah, to to live by. And anyway, and it and it some of the things he notices is mm-hmm. what Horace Greeley is pointing out. Yeah. So this guy Debau, Debau, Debau. It's kind of the... I think it's Debeau. Well, so he's a Southerner and he's, you know, seeing these issues of the South doesn't have nearly the same amount of railroad or industry, factories, production, things like this. And so he wants to change that. Um, and he wants to uh, make the Southern states less reliant on the industry of the North. And he's really urging this industrialization, but in a lot of ways... The South is just outpaced, right? So over the course of the 1850s, Southern states do gain more factories and industry and all of this, but they're just outpaced by the Northern states who are already so far ahead on this. Um, <clears throat> oh, can I, can I read? I just, I just, I have McPherson in front of me and I just want to read a quote yes, that spoke to some of that Southern uh, honor, honor? Yes. Southern nationalism you're talking about. Yes, please. So this comes from James Hammond of South Carolina. In cities and factories, the vices of our nature are more fully displayed. Um, While the rural life promotes a generous hospitality, a high and perfect courtesy, a lofty spirit of independence, and all the nobler virtues of heroic traits. Yeah. And this is what I'm talking about. I grew up in a rural community, and I got I gotta call cap on that. That's just a bunch <laughs> of bullshit. <laughs> but don't you think that that's, that's what? And again, you did not grow up in the rural South. 
I know, but it's just so it's so weird. But it's so weird to read quotes like that. It's like, wow, you're really trying hard to justify justify something? your lifestyle, yeah. man. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, I just saw that and thought you'd be interested in hearing that. No, that's I, I like that a lot. Yeah, anything about like this idea of Southern honor is going to be really interesting to me as we work through this. But like like you said, Jesse, kind of as we were segueing into this economic part, talking about the South, um, one of the things that the South ran into that was a struggle, that was a hurdle that they couldn't quite get over was the where their capital was invested. Right. right. Because most of the South's wealth and capital and money was invested in either land mm-hmm. or in people. people. And the people, by the way, were becoming much more expensive. Right. Because there was no... Atlantic slave trade. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think we, we spent a lot of time talking about that mm-hmm. in the first pod. Yeah. There was the social prestige attached to the planter class and this idea of Southern culture and Southern honor um, and cotton being this king, this dominant force. But on top of that, you also have um, Manifest Destiny. So Manifest Destiny plays an interesting role in the Southern mentality in the 1850s because they're really looking at expansion as a way to preserve what Southerners of the time period would call their peculiar institutions, which of course we interpret as slavery. And they they are looking more to the South, towards Central America, yes. towards Cuba. Yeah. Um, there's a crazy guy, Walker. Is it Walker? Who goes to Nicaragua. And yeah, and Cuba, right? Uh, one of the yeah. one of the is it one of the filibusters who tried to attack Cuba and yeah. wasn't successful but was treated like a hero in the right. south. There's I mean there's a whole saga of these like honorable southern men who are who want to establish slavery in new lands who are going to like Cuba multiple times. But there's not just a talk when there's not just a talk of Southern independence with when you have when you read these quotes, Mm -hmm. there's also talks of dominating global trade Mm -hmm. and control, like kind of like world (laughs) control language. It was really it's like pinky in the brain. (laughs) It is like pinky in the brain for sure. Um, And they're trying to find that trade route, you know, through Central America. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, they're trying to get as much as they can out of that Mexican American war. Yeah effort and um yeah honestly i was kind of annoyed because i was like man manifest destiny just will not go away here i am reading about it again i know and it's it's you it's impossible to avoid um when you're talking about the cause of the civil war it is and yeah so southerners whether it was through you know themselves or kind of crowdfunded they were trying to add more slave territories into the Union by looking at places like Cuba or Nicaragua. Um, There were some attempts in Mexico in the 1850s as well. But um, one of the interesting things, and again, we think about Manifest Destiny out here in the West um, because we deal with it in our days and works and like the historical thinking here. And so often, or almost never when you talk about Manifest Destiny in the West today, is it linked with the kind of pro-Southern, pro-slavery movement? So that's really interesting. But I did like the point McPherson made about these attempts by Southern states and Southerners to kind of take over parts of Central and South America, um, having a legacy that lives on kind of like in Central American feelings about gringos and, and, you know, Americans and white Americans. And um, so some interesting kind of legacies. The disruption caused in Nicaragua, Mm -hmm. um, Mexico, Cuba. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I, I, yeah, that was a good point by McPherson. Yeah. And then ultimately these kind of Southern quests to expand are going to be kind of, pushed aside because there's a bigger a bigger topic that comes along and that bigger topic is kansas and nebraska um and then that's gonna segue us into chapter four initially just nebraska right yeah and and um if nebraska is added because it's north of that 36th parallel Mm -hmm. then again that 
precious balance will be upset. Will upset. Yeah. And so Stephen Douglas. Yeah, the little giant. Okay, Democrat yeah. from the state of Illinois. So nickname watch, since you mentioned the little Beep, giant, <laughs> goes to political parties this podcast episode. I've got, oh, okay. we've read about the filibusters. We read about the barn burners, the yeah. fire eaters, nice. and then a bunch of Republican names that I can't uh, remember at this time, yeah. and I didn't write them down. But also, we're gonna but, we're gonna learn about a new political party coming in, the Know Nothings, which is oh, a cool a nickname. It's a good nickname for it, a political party, and it's impossible to read about the Know Nothings and nativism and not think about the gangs of New York, which I. <laughs> Hold is one of the best Scorsese movies, no. in my opinion. I love that movie. Okay, the the listening audience can back me up on this. <laughs> I told Jesse that The Departed is a better Scorsese movie than Gangs of New York. And this is saying something because I really like Civil War era history. But I think The Departed is a better movie than Gangs of New York. Jesse disagrees. I, I love that movie. I, I'm and, not saying it's a bad movie. I just think The Departed is better. So if you, so if you're a fan of that movie, Bill the Butcher is a nativist, yeah. you know, Protestant, know nothing guy. Yeah. And I think the movie does a good job of depicting that, um, that split between Catholics, Protestants, yeah. between well, nativists and immigrants. <clears throat> and uh, I just I don't know the movie even like you'll if you know some of the history backstory the movie has these little historical nods in it so Definitely. you can catch stuff about know nothings or the wide Link, awake Lincoln or mm-hmm. Civil War um so anyway lots of good stuff oh free soilers free soilers is a good a lot, one a lot of a lot of political nicknames but as we you know are kind of already diving in chapter four of the of this is titled Slavery, Rum, and Romanism. So can, can we take a short break and make some coffee and then come back? Perfect. Okay. So we get to 1854, and it's the, the Congress passes um, the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Before that, Pierce, the president, 1852, um, he's been enforcing the Fugitive Slave Law. Mm-hmm. The South likes that. Um, he's and, been doing that vigorously and then also trying to open up the remainder of the Louisiana purchase mm-hmm. north of the 30, 36th. Yeah. Um, and, and he's, there's a lot of money and energy being spent on that endeavor. And Pierce and the Southerners kind of vigorous enforcement of the fugitive slave law has this reaction in the Northern states. So in the Southern states, there's a different reaction, but in the North, it's this like, kind of firing up of a lot of Northerners over what they see as some of the wrongs of this law. Now, whether the Northerners are morally opposed to slavery and that's why they're getting fired up, or whether it's just they don't like being forced into um, helping with this or whatever, right? But Northerners are really starting to get a little bit more kind of militant and fired up and angry. And then on top of that, then in 1854, you have the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Yeah. What, can you explain that? Yeah. So um, Stephen <clears throat> Douglas, the little giant, he's a Democrat from Illinois. Uh, full disclosure, I lived in Illinois for a time. And so, you know, and being someone who loves this time period in history, of course, I was like, oh, like Stephen Douglas, Abraham Lincoln. And so um, those they Illinois were, folks are... They were competitors. They oh, even yeah. Pro- they were they debated competing. each other. Exactly. Mm-hmm. In public public uh, yeah. forums, I guess. Or yeah. yeah. Lincoln-Douglas debates is a whole other cool rabbit hole that we won't talk about today. Um, but so Stephen Douglas, he's trying to... He's trying to get Nebraska in to the Union as a state. Nebraska sits above the 3630 parallel. Um, now this is kind of a line that was decided upon in the 1820s. The Missouri Compromise. Missouri Compromise, which is 1820. So in the Missouri Compromise, it says that slavery would not go above that longitudinal line that kind of spans the nation or the continent. Um, Stephen Douglas, he wants to get Nebraska into the Union. Nebraska is above the, the 3630 line. But there's this contingent of Southerners in Congress who are just 
They have gritted their teeth, they have dug their heels in, and they are not going to allow Nebraska to enter the Union because it's going to be a free state, it's above the parallel, and that's going to throw off this balance in Congress between states that have slavery and states that don't have slavery. And Southerners see that that this balance being upset as an imminent direct threat, not only to slavery, but like we were talking about with Chapter 3, They see this as a threat to their culture, to their idea of who they are and how they live, right? They're kind of that Southern culture is threatened by any threat to slavery that Congress might pose. So Stephen Douglas, little giant that he is, is determined to get Nebraska in. And so he actually um, compromises with some of these Southern congressmen and comes up with the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And what this does is it repeals the 3630 slavery ban that was set forward in the Missouri Compromise. And Kansas and Nebraska are organized. And then they will use popular sovereignty to then enter the Union as either slave or free states. And to do this, uh, Douglas is pretty um, shifty. He <laughs> cites a clerical error. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, and it, it like it had been around for thirty plus years. The the Missouri yeah. Compromise, and people saw it as like this is the not going to change. It yeah. can't change, right? Exactly. And then Douglas comes in. He's like, well, almost like how you know certain things in our society today. You know, we never thought they would change or right. something would happen to them for sure. Um, but do you yeah. want, do you want to mention or talk about the Anthony Burns case? So Anthony Burns um, was an enslaved person who escaped. Mm-hmm. He was also literate, which yeah. means meant that he could write to his brother who was still enslaved. Yeah, and then that letter was intercepted, Intercepted. Right? Mm-hmm. And then there was a huge amount of federal money spent because the South made a big deal. Okay, well, we need to, we know where this man is. We need to hold true to the fugitive slave law and, you know, make sure that 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 law is upheld. That's how they kept framing it is the law must be upheld, which is ironic in the big picture, right? And it also leads to um, conflict. It does. Armed, armed conflict. Yeah. And this is happening in Massachusetts, correct? Um. I believe, let's see. Well, Jesse's checking on that, if it's in Massachusetts, which I think it is. Um, I just want to go over really quickly what popular sovereignty is, in case you're listening in and you don't know. Popular sovereignty is the idea that the population within a territory would vote, and um, they would vote either for or against slavery. So popular sovereignty is the idea that the population of that area would vote on whether or not they would have slavery or not have slavery in their state constitution. And then they, you know, petition to join the union that way. So, um, again, the Kansas-Nebraska Act was saying that Kansas and Nebraska would enter the union using popular sovereignty, which is going to lead to so many things. You're right about Burns. Um, he Massachusetts. Had, he had gone to Massachusetts okay. and was. Um, they were attempting to return him to Virginia. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, through that conflict, um, people were trying to save Burns yep. or rescue. He well, he had been arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, some Northerners were trying to save him or trying to protect him from being returned to yep. Virginia. And deputies, a couple deputies in this process ended up being shot and killed. And again, it just gets gets at that idea that the fugitive slave law and a lot of this other stuff is slowly building resistance and almost militancy in the North, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's building this conflict and building these like entrenched tensions and sides between Northerners and Southerners, pro-slavery and anti-slavery, right? All of these... And, and meanwhile, Southern Democrats are looking at the Kansas and Platte River valleys and and thinking, hmm, this would also make good yeah. uh, cotton territory. They're licking their chops. Let's let the states decide. Let's let the population uh-huh. inside those areas decide. Absolutely. Um, and then even though Douglas 
is from a northern state. You know, he's a Democrat. And so he's pushing this legislation through. And one of the interesting things is they talk about how, you know, people thought Congress and the congressional tactics in the Compromise of 1850 were bad. Then they say, like, what came for in the debates for the Kansas-Nebraska Act in Congress was just, like, next level. So we see this escalation in how Congress is behaving and interacting. But the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act really was the last, the final nail in the coffin of the Whig party. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because Southern Whigs and Northern Whigs, they realize we can... this the question of slavery is the, gonna is it's we too, can't we can't compromise anymore. Yeah. So the Whig Party is basically saying the topic of slavery is too divisive for the Southern Whigs and the Northern Whigs to see eye to eye anymore because that issue of slavery is just too dominant, too divisive. Um, so the Whig Party kind of peters out. It it goes by the wayside. And I have a quote about that. Oh, please. The Whig Party has been. Quote, the Whig Party has been killed off effectually by that miserable Nebraska business. Oh, that's a good quote. Um, and then a, Republi- a, a would-be Republican quotes, reestablishment of liberty and the overthrow of slave power. So that is kind of the galvanizing force of the, re- of the newly what formed What would become Republican. the Republican Party. Yeah. Yeah, so from... Think of the Whig Party, right, like a phoenix. It's a bird that burns up and then out of the ashes comes this new party, which we know will will be the Republican Party. But before we get to the Republican Party, there's kind of some growing pains that we just want to cover briefly that McPherson talks about in this chapter that kind of get us to the Republican Party. Um, so... While the Republican Party is still young and it's early on, there's another rival party springing up at the same time. And uh, this is called the Know Nothing Party. Mm -hmm. And the Know Nothings are really strongly driven by, Jesse? Nativism. Yeah. And, well, and And Protestant beliefs. But also, like, let's talk about native... Let's kind of give a summary what is meant by nativism because again like out here in the west it has nothing to do with native americans yes but i I do think like defining that yeah yeah definitely nativism is the belief that um the that being born in the united states is very important critically important also being protestant and not specifically being catholic or irish or scottish or pro-pope pro-Italian. Yeah. yeah. That's what being nat- uh, nativist is. Absolutely. So the Know Nothing Party is kind of comes up in this era very steeped in nativism. So nativism is like very anti-immigrant. Mm-hmm. It's very anti-Catholic. Um, and it's usually pretty pro-Protestant as well as um, there's an element in nativism and with the Know Nothings as well that has to do with the temperance movement. Temperance, yep. Which temperance feels like a very old-timey term. Um, I feel like we just don't use the word temperance much anymore. But temperance is basically anti-alcohol. And so there was this big, like, anti-drinking, anti-alcohol movement that was... All these factors were being pulled together, and then the know-nothing party is pulling in all of these factors. Um... They supported temperance, so they were anti-drinking of alcohol, which also coincided with some more of those anti-immigrants. Stereotypes. Yeah, for sure. Um, They often, the know-nothings wanted to reduce the power of foreign-born voters. Mm -hmm. They actually proposed that anyone who was an immigrant had to... They the know nothings were pushing this idea of extending the waiting period for an immigrant to be able to vote. Like so, before someone who immigrated to the U.S. became a citizen, before they were able to vote, the know nothings wanted to make it twenty one years before you were able to vote, which is a very long time. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, they also opposed um, taxes for schools and things like that. So, no nothing party, very strongly nativist. This is where we get into the um, 
references to Gangs of New York. So, and I forgot when you asked me about the Know Nothing party, um, can I ask you, where did the Know Nothing name come from? Yeah. And what is that kind of describing? Yeah, so um, apparently there were a couple big orders or fraternal orders, organizations. Secret societies. Yeah, and they had a high degree of secrecy. They were predominantly Protestant, native-born, and these organizations had big, um, large membership and they all made this pledge to only vote for native-born Protestant candidates. And so they would put those candidates forward. And because of this, like, kind of secrecy aspect to these fraternal orders, um, apparently when folks in this group were asked by people not in the organization, um, members were instructed to respond, I know nothing. And so then they got that that nickname, right? The political party nickname of the Know Nothings. So the Know Nothing party was super strongly native born as well as Protestant. And they became this big voting block in kind of the mid 1850s. In the the North. In the North. But they do start to pull from the South. And one of the things that happens And the reason why we don't still have a know-nothing party and the reason why kind of the Republican Party gained strength as the know-nothings were splitting and splintering and breaking apart is, again, guess what topic this happens over, Jesse? Uh, Well, slavery? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I I was looking through McPherson to try to... Talk about some of the coalition names for the Republican movement. Oh, nice. Um, More so we have anti-Nebraska, Fusion, Peoples, Independent. But the one name that emerged most prominently was Republican. Yeah. And so that's where the the Romanism comes from yeah. in, the ch- in the chapter name. Well, kind of. But it's also Romanism in terms of Roman Catholic, right? Oh. And like following the Pope, like the Papists. Sure. Um, and how... I thought it was like the Republican-style government. Well, I mean, that also comes from Rome. Yeah. So, I don't know. Ambiguous. But as the Know Nothing Party is, it's extending further south, and they're getting traction in southern states. But as it's doing this, slavery is this issue that's splitting it and splintering it, and ultimately will be the downfall of the Know Nothing Party. Um, And as the Know Nothings kind of recede... Out of that comes the Republican Party, which, of right. course, is still the name of a political party that's around today. When I was reading this, I was like, this is so ironic. And I know that the values of the Democratic Party and Republican Party have changed as, yes. we, as we know them today. Definitely. But um, as, as the Whig Party dissolves, the Republicans are seeking, and I read this earlier, but I'll read it again. Quote, reestablishment of liberty and the overthrow of slave power. Mm. And now in 2024, you have a Republican candidate who is unwilling to say that the Civil War was about slavery. Yeah. And it's just fascinating because when people read about Lincoln and they're like, oh, Republican, you know, they have this has the same values as George Bush. That's actually not true. Um, And you need to be careful about how you view how, or how you think about the Democratic Party today versus how it was back then. 100%. And I think that's... Same true for Republican Party today not, versus then. And we're not going to touch on that change or shift, but yeah. I just thought it would... It was ironic when I read about the Republican movement back in the 1850s. Yeah. And then to compare that to today is so different. It, it really is. Um, those parties are going to change values, change, you know, very different so, than, again, like Jesse said, what the parties represent today. But I think it is interesting that this moment is the birth of a political party. And the name of that party is still one of our two dominant political parties today. I mean, same true for the democratic party. Mm -hmm. So by 1854, I'm sorry, 1856, we have pretty much the establishment of the two main political parties. And yes, they've switched and changed. And flipped and whatnot. But the two main political parties that are still around today are from this time period. So it's another just cool connection to, you know, from our lives in 2024 to this time period. Um, 
but yeah, out of the ashes of the Whig Party and out of the ashes of the Know Nothings comes the Republican Party. And um, the Republican Party um, kind of coalesces around one big issue. And they're able to cap not capitalize, but like really gain a lot of voters and momentum over this one particular issue. And you have Lincoln emerging as a leader for this party. Um, he was still calling himself a Whig at this time, right? Eventually, he'll switch. But, yeah, yeah, but the, he, but he, he shares the values of Republicans. Yeah, and when he runs for president, it's on the Republican ticket. But I have a quote from him. He's talking about slavery and the Constitution, and he says. Um, thus the thing is hid away. So he's talking about how um, the issue of slavery was kept out of the Constitution purposely by the founding fathers. Because, okay, quote, Thus the thing is hid away in the Constitution, said Lincoln, just as an afflicted man hides away a when or a cancer, which he dares not cut out at once, lest he bleed to death, with the promise, nevertheless, that the cutting may begin at the end of a given time. And so he's basically saying... I think it does, it sheds light on what we'll talk more about, which is a key part of the Republican Party, mm -hmm. is not necessarily abolish slavery outright, but stop it expanding. So prevent slavery from expanding into more areas. And that's what Lincoln's talking about here. Yeah. Um, and he's talking about... You know, the founders, when they wrote these founding documents like the Constitution, you know, Lincoln is arguing that they intentionally left the word slave and slavery out because they thought over time there would be this gradual It would fall out of fashion. Yeah. It had already began to fall out of fashion during the time the Constitution was being written, by the way. Yeah. In some parts of the world. Well, and then you have Eli Whitney and the cotton gin, which makes... Yeah. It way more profitable and then there's this like resurgence and you know all of yeah. this but but eventually they well they knew it was wrong well some people did right you have the famous yeah. quote by jefferson it's like we have a wolf by the ears you know we can't let it go but we don't want to keep holding on to it when yeah. talking about slavery and so you have that cognitive acknowledgement like he knows slavery's wrong yeah but at the same time he doesn't see a way to let it go Without everything that he knows that, you know, he's built and all of that crumbling around him. So it's an interesting, they were in a pickle. I just think that up until that point, um, I didn't know of any quotes where somebody talks about slavery being left out of the Constitution. Yeah. So I think it's an example of Lincoln, Lincoln becoming an effective, um, I don't know, arguer for... Yeah. Anti-slavery or abolition. Lincoln is, if you hadn't known already, I am very, I am a, I like Lincoln a lot. Um, so I think that he's very clever and um, he's pretty measured in a lot of ways. And so when he's, yeah, he's able to interpret documents like the Constitution and draw it, draw what he's standing for, what he's running on. And then pulling in those big founding documents and this idea of being an American through those documents. And then using those documents to support his argument, his political cause. Right. It's very clever. Definitely. Lincoln is nothing if not a wonderful politician. For sure. I mean, he's many other things too. Yeah. I'm but, excited uh, to talk more about Lincoln. Me too. Um, He's an interesting guy. So we can probably end there. We've got No Nothings versus Republicans coming up. Yep. Next chapter, we're going to be getting heavily into Kansas. Do you want to try to read the last um, part of a paragraph of of chapter four to talk well, to preface what's coming in chapter five? Or it's just, just this idea of like um, the rise of the Republican Party was really strengthened by. Kansas. And so what what people in the north came to see is there wasn't as much of a threat from immigrants, so this nativism kind of died down a little bit, as much as there was a threat from the slave power. And the slave power was 
instigating and intervening in Kansas. Because remember, Kansas is, is north of... One, it's, oh, just, yeah. it's trying to decide whether it'd be slave state or free state through popular sovereignty. So through the votes of the people there. Okay. And so we get to this nickname yeah. for Kansas, which we're going to talk a lot about on the next episode. Well, see, and I, w- I was already confused because I forgot that Stephen Douglas did away with the whole Missouri Compromise. Exactly. Thing. So I'm, I was already confused. Yeah. But so we'll be talking about how Kansas goes from Kansas to bleeding Kansas. And this bleeding Kansas, which we're going to dive into more on the next episode, is a huge uh, propeller of this Republican cause. And I just thought of another sports nickname, the Kansas Jayhawks. Oh, yeah. uh, because we talked about the 49ers last yeah, episode. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're a if you're a college basketball fan, you definitely know the Kansas Jayhawks. Their football team's not much to speak of. Yeah. But uh we'll probably talk about Jayhawks next cool. next chapter or next uh episode. Yeah. So real quick, where are we going? So in our next episode of the Goober P podcast, we're gonna cover chapters five and six of Battle Cry of Freedom by James McPherson. Chapter 5 is titled the, the Crime Against Kansas. And then Chapter 6 is titled Mud Sills and Greasy Mechanics for A. Lincoln. So we are on the road to some really good, um, good conversations and good stuff. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to, to Episode 2. And um, oh, we will be getting an email soon if you'd like to weigh in and ask questions. We don't know what the email is yet. Uh, but when we get that, you guys can write us and tell us what we missed. Tell us what, you know. Yeah. Or if this has sparked any light bulb moments for you, you can write those, you know, ahas to us as well. But for now, we'll sign off and say thanks for listening to the Goober P Pod, episode two.